Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are once again looking back in time and casting our eye over some of the short fiction of Cordwainer Smith. Uh, Cordwainer Smith is the pseudonym of a gentleman named Paul Linebarger, who has a fascinating biography um, that I'm sure will be completely fascinating. Touching on as we as we discuss some of the stories. Um, as as it has been noted, Karen and I should be barred from speaking about anything other than short fiction. <laughs> Yes, this will be fun. <laughs> so uh, today we have four short stories, um, and we'll be talking about them in the order in which they slot into Smith's future history. Um, so we're going to start with Scanners Live in Vain, uh, then The Lady Who Sailed the Soul. We'll talk about Alpha Ralpha Boulevard, and then um, one of the later stories that he wrote called On the Gem Planet. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if we start with Scanners Live in Vain... So Cordwainer Smith is one of my choices, so I'll be doing the summaries. Um, Scanners of Invade was the very first science fiction story that he wrote and sold, well, not wrote, but that he sold as a professional. It was uh, submitted in 1948 and published in 1950, and it immediately made such a splash that it was quickly um, anthologized as one of the original um, uh, Nebula volume sort of best of all time. And I have to say that I'm completely tickled. This this particular anthology of short stories has little extras, and the extra is the um, submission cover letter for Scanners um, Live in Vain. And my favorite line is, this is more literary fiction than pulp fiction. And he puts literary in little, you know, quotes. But I have hopes that your magazine, being off trail, might be interested in using it. I just, that line cracked me up. And um, and the interesting thing is it wasn't sold to Campbell's Astounding or H.L. Gold's Galaxy. Um, it was sold to Fantasy Book, which was a little bit off the beaten trail. Um, but I also love the line, if you want to check up on who I am, you can look me up in Who's Who in America, the current 1947-48 version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, um, Paul Linebarger himself was a psychological warfare expert who had um, spent much of his childhood, his father was an ambassador, and specifically the ambassador to China. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a very interesting career. Extremely. And I think that really comes through at least a little bit in Scanners Live in Vain. So the idea of this story is that space is is actively hostile to humans trying to travel long distances through it. Mm-hmm. That in, in the depths of space, it, it, is, it is impinging on the spacecraft and the humans inside the spacecraft to such an extent that you either have to be knocked out cold and put in essentially suspended animation, and that's how the passengers go, or you have to have your nervous system cut off from the rest of you, basically. Um, mm-hmm. almost, almost like a pain relief device in a way. Right, although it, it's... And, and basically the, um, the, the scanning part of the title, Scanners of in Vain, is that these scanners who have done this voluntarily um, have to keep scanning themselves to, to know, essentially, if they're still alive. They have no mm-hmm. innate sensory feedback. So if they cut off an arm, they have to actually look to see if their arm's gone. Yeah. They won't feel yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts out with the scanner kind of throwing a temper tantrum um, 
he's one of the very, very rare scanners who married, and he married after uh, he, he underwent the procedure. Um, and it turns out there's this technology, and it's very, very hand-wavy. Cordwainer Smith was exactly the opposite <laughs> of a hard SF writer. Um, I, I think this, this actually, he writes some of the most mythic science fiction that, that I have read. Um, but but, so, but it is it is to me still very much social science fiction. Yes. So I will I will stand up for him in that regard. Oh yeah, absolutely. And again, he he was a, his profession was as a psychological warfare expert. So when mm-hmm. he talks about you know sociology and psychology, he's very on the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so these scanners have this kind of technology called cranking, and and when they're cranking, they can regain they can basically kind of bridge that gap between their nervous system and the rest of them, once again, for short periods of time, but it's quite dangerous for them. Hang on, you pronounced it, you pronounced it cranking. I did. Is that the way it's supposed to be pronounced? I have no idea. <laughs> I pronounce it crunching. <laughs> that, that's right. I'm sure it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Sorry, please go ahead. <laughs> um, but, so... Yeah, so it starts out with him uh, um, insisting on going under this cranking, and his wife's really worried about him, obviously. And mm-hmm. um, Because supposedly it's something you're not supposed to do too often. Right, too often or for too long. Mm-hmm. And, and they even talk about you know, coming back across the wild threshold of pain, so it's, a, it's not a um, uh, trivial procedure. But so, um, so he does it, and, and she's like, she's worried about him, but she's like, okay, well, we'll have this, this nice time together. And there's a really interesting scene where she, um, you know, this is a very far future. This is supposed to be, like, something like 11,000 years in the future. And, um, and she pulls out a, a record of smells. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she's like, oh, you know, here, here's some interesting things that they've dug up out of the ancient archives. And one of the things she plays is smell of lamb chops. And this is one of those far futures where, oh, we're so far past eating real meat. Right? <laughs> uh-huh. So he, he essentially has what I would describe, and check me on this, Karen, a PTSD flashback when he smells yeah. burned meat. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that in these interstellar passages, he's a scanner and he's done this voluntarily. Um, under him, when he's in space, are these um, sort of exiles or convicts called Habermen. And they've had it done to them not voluntarily. And they sort of do the dirty work. And sometimes, you know, whatever goes wrong, he flashes, Martel is the the main character, he flashes back to a time when the smell of burning people um, actually made it past his sensory blocks. And, and something had been going horribly wrong, and, and these Habermen were, were essentially dying all around him. And he was just, you know, staying focused on, on his job because that's who he was. He was a scanner, and he actually has to tell his wife, turn, turn off the smell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I thought that was really well done. It was really well done because it's, it's very emotional, and it gives, it, in this very dramatic scene, it gives you. Um, so a lot of background about what scanning is, why it's dangerous, why what he does is important. Um, and then also I got reading it this most recent time. I originally started reading Cordrainer Smith in high school because my father was a fan. And, um, 
reading it this time and putting it in the context of having been written in 1947-48, right after World War II, it really mm. drove home to me the idea that the scanners are, are an elite, essentially a military corps, and that they're continually contrasted with the civilian world. Yes. And they're almost, they're almost um, a, walk, a, a literal walking wounded of that. Right, right. They've had something incredibly traumatic done to them. And just the fact that they're, that they're volunteers and they're, they're considered heroes doesn't necessarily make up for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, remember when... Uh, okay, so um, his wife... Oh, where is it where she recites the honor, the honor to him? Ah, here we go. So, you know, after, after she cuts off the smell... And he's like, oh, man, you know, I'm really sorry for freaking out there. Um, And she says, her pride is disciplined and automatic, but you're a scanner. It's like, I know I'm a scanner, so what? And she she went over the words like a tale told a thousand times to reassure herself. Quote, you are the bravest of the brave, the most skillful of the skilled. All mankind owes most honor to the scanner who unites the earth of mankind. Scanners are the protectors of the Habermen. They are the judges in the up and out. They make men live in the place where men need desperately to die. They're the most honored of mankind, and even the chiefs of the instrumentality are delighted to pay them homage. And, yeah. you know, but again, it's being contrasted with everything that he's given up. Yes. And, um, okay, so at this point, then, uh, they talk a little bit more, um, and then he gets a call from his colleagues, and they're saying, top emergency, you have to report right now. And he's like, I can't fly, I can't do anything, I'm under, you know, I'm under this condition, um, let, leave me out of it. And they're like, nope, nope, top emergency, everyone has to come in. And it turns out there's the very small fraternity of, of pilots that's only maybe, uh, what, 60-odd people. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes in, and this again is where you get this idea of, of a very small, elite military group. Um, they come in, everyone's like, oh, hey, you know, you know what's going on? What's the emergency? And and you get this great um, great great scene where Martel is sort of standing apart, bridging the gap between us and them, which was so incredibly well done because you you basically introduce this idea of this human that is not quite a human because mm-hmm. of as you said this horrible thing that's been done to them this traumatic thing that's been done to them, and it's only when you begin to see them in their meeting that's really hammered home yeah and as you said because he's he's gone through the, the crunching and he's just, and he's close to human now he's connected as it were to, to his nervous system he's he's able to kind of see them briefly through different eyes and that's that's really why he didn't want to turn up because he knew he wouldn't be functioning at their level right and and there is there's also an aspect of i don't know if we can call it uncanny valley for humans having to deal with scanners when they're in full scanner mode oh, because yeah. they don't act they don't act like humans. Sorry, I'm, I'm taking I'm taking this away from you. Continue, no, no. continue, some right. <laughs> well, it's just it's just that there's this bit later on when he's talking to one of his closer colleagues. This is Chang. And um, and then what happens is that um, and and the funny thing is Chang is also a bit of a bridge because Chang has trained himself to simulate human behavior more, even as in full scanner mode. Right. So the scan- the only thing the scanners are really hooked up to naturally is their eyes. And um mm-hmm. and so they they write on tablets to communicate to each other. They sometimes lip read. Um Chang it turns out can actually 
talk more or less normally. Uh, just through sheer force of will, he learned how to control mm-hmm. his vocal cords, you know. And also more of his facial expressions as well. Right, right. So he mm-hmm. doesn't look quite as quite as dead as the other scanners <laughs> do. But, but yeah. that scene where, where Martel's looking at them as an outsider instead of an insider is brilliantly done. Mm-hmm. And then, so it turns out that the emergency that... Although, actually, wait, before we get into that, Chang is a great character, and he's a, I think he's a very important character. I would bet that in 1950, there were not very many um, Chinese, and especially not like, oh, hey, here's my friend who's half Chinese. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> but, but then you begin to realize, because of, of Smith's background, that if there's one culture that does come through very strongly in his future universe, it's the Chinese culture, because that's clearly the other culture he knows best. Yes. And it's interesting because he, he does have some stereotyped comments about Chang being Chinese. But there's such, <laughs> he does. There's such a different stereotype in <laughs> than what we have today about Chinese people. <laughs> That's true. Yes, yes. You know, because <laughs> again, you know, uh, Smith was most familiar with China in, in the Chiang Kai-shek era of the 20s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, his view of China at this point is entirely pre-communist. Ah, oh, that's a very good point. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, I, 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 anyway, I, I thought that was a really nice touch. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so it turns out that the emergency is, well, first they go through a whole, they, that whole thing about hum, humanity must honor the scanners, that's, mm-hmm. like, tripled. They, there's, yes. They've got a whole call and response ritual about how, you know, he, what our job is, what we do, and it's very... I, I want to say Masonic, although I, I don't know if that's... It, I was thinking the same thing. Either that or a guild. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very secret handshake and very much a reinforcing of group identity. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, is, is really important because... So it turns out that the, um, uh, the emergency is that somebody has discovered, Mr. Adam Stone has discovered how to travel in space without dying. <laughs> <laughs> without without going through this whole Haberman process, and it's it's a fascinating bit. Basically, what he does is he's he in, fills the shell of his spaceship with oysters, and and the pain of space kills the oysters in and not the humans inside. Mm-hmm. And that's such a just like wow, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, to be fair, to be fair, we do find out in later stories exactly what the origin of the pain of space is. So, so this story is almost at a stage where if it sounds mythical, it's because they don't really understand what's going on. They just know something is killing people. So they're given it uh, some kind of title, but there's no proper explanation behind it yet. Right, right. Okay, so, um, so but the problem is, if, if Adam's stone is right and this is a viable technology then it means that scanners are instantly obsolete mm-hmm. hence the title hence the title <laughs> scanners would live in vain and uh and so vomact the the head of this guild um says doesn't matter whether he's right or not either way he has to die <laughs> mm-hmm. and everyone's like hmm yeah that's that's probably true and Mart- <laughs> and the interesting thing is Martel first tries to back out. He basically the first thing he does after this after they break up for discussion is he goes up to the the leader and says, "Look, I'm I'm still cranked and I should go." Not mm-hmm. he's not being subversive at this point. He's just like, "I understand that I am not currently functioning as part of this group and I would like to leave." 
And it's only when they say, no, no, you have to, you have to, you know, you have to stay that he starts getting a little more subversive. Mm -hmm. So, um, so for him, you know, he, he is at this moment as close to being human again as he can be. And, you know, he's one, again, one of the few who has a wife and, um, and he's like, look, if we don't, you know, if other people don't have to go through this, that'd be great. But everyone else is back in their professional role and they're like, no, wait, we, we can't, you know, it's the in-group survival um, mechanism. You know, that the mm-hmm. groups have a survival instinct the same way that, that people do. Yes. And at a certain point they start existing partly to do their job and partly to perpetuate their job. Mm-hmm. And, Although and, there's also a hint in there, besides the, the group identity and group survival thing, there's also a hint in there that the very job of being cut off from humanity in a way to do their job has also had um, a kind of a, a long-reaching effect in terms of their ability to assess the situation. Because, you know, they kind of leap from, he's done this to he must die, as opposed to, is there any kind of intermediate solution here? <laughs> so um, so it, it's, it is fascinating from that point of view, and also fascinating that uh, Martel, the one who's, who's crunch, and also Chang, the one who has learned to fake humanity, and in a sense, if you learn to fake something, you have to be in touch with it a little bit more. They're the, they're the ones who descend. Right. So they descend, their descent comes to nothing. Several votes are taken, and, and the votes are, are overwhelmingly in favor of killing Adam Stone. Um, mm-hmm. Martel tries a, a bureaucratic workaround. He says, no, wait, wait, this isn't a legal quorum. <laughs> that, uh-huh. that tactic doesn't get anywhere. And then when he jumps down, um, when he stands down, he goes over to Chang and says, what are we going to do? And Chang's like, well, you know, sure, we dissented, but, you know, the vote's been taken and, and now we have to go with what the group says. And Martel's mm-hmm. like, wait, no. So he actually goes <laughs> and um, he bluffs his way in to see Adam Stone before the scanner assassin gets there. Has a conversation mm-hmm. with Stone. Stone explains what he's been doing and why. And then um, when, the, when the scanner assassin gets there, who was one of Martel's closer colleagues, um, Martel actually kills him. Yeah. And then, interestingly enough, it has a, a fairly happy ending. I mean, Martel wakes up, and he's actually gone back through the Haberman process and has been returned to be a man. And his murder's been covered up. And his murder's been very <laughs> handily covered up. Yeah, yeah. So, and at first I thought it was a, a very kind of weak or soft ending. But then as I, as I kind of thought about it again, I realized this was a short story that never really had a traditional, uh, as he said, a pulp fiction structure. It really does have a literary structure. So it's not supposed to have a... Uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't have that kind of, you know that particular kind of climax and ending. It is more about the character study in there. Right. And, and also the study of the group and how the group reacted. And in a way, the plot points are, it would be, it'd be a stretch to say they're incidental, but let's just say that they're not as, as far to the front as they would be in a Pulp Fiction story. Well, the other thing is, again, the plot is, is largely internal. It's largely people talking. Um, yes, you know this group meeting and the rituals. I mean, you could you could 
practically see that the the, the meeting's being held via Robert Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> yes, um, but I I really like. Essentially, this feels to me like a very prescient warning about the military industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, well, you know, there are plenty of opportunities for him to be able to to see that in real life. That's the thing. Yeah. I'm like, when you read the story and then you think of who he was, then you go, oh, damn. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, in a way, you say the military, but in a way, when I read this, I immediately thought of, don't laugh, Billy Elliot, the, the miners' strike. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it is a kind of a story that in many ways gets repeated every generation whenever there's a, a, a technological and economic shift. And you have a, a large group of people. I mean, the miners were like that as well. They had been doing it for generations. Well, no, sorry. Scanners haven't been doing it for generations. But the miners, because they've been doing it for generations, they too had their own sense of like brotherhood and tradition and, and, and kind of commitment to this particular kind of work and way of life. True, true. So, so to, to suddenly wipe it all that and say, hey, find another job, it just wasn't that simple. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were not even, and we're not even adding in the elite aspect, which is where the military comparison works far better. Right, and the fact that these, these people have the power to set themselves up as an extra legal authority. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they yes. have the, the social and political pull to be able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Um... Now, this is one of the first places where you see uh, Smith's incredible tone deafness about some female characters. <laughs> Were you reading my mind? <laughs> that was going to be the next thing that came out of my mouth. I, I was like, I, here are my notes. Only one woman in this story, and she's very much the 1950s wifey stereotype. <laughs> wifey stereotype, yes. Oh, my um, they're not all this bad, but I, I'm not going to say that the average Smith female is a lot better than this. <laughs> this is true. But, but no, no, wait. We got we to gotta set them up for the next one. But we have to set up for the next story because the next story is probably, I, I personally think that the next story has his, has his best female heroine. And here's the controversy because the editor's introduction claims that it was co-authored by Cordwainer Smith's wife. Right. Genevieve um, Linebarger, is it? Yep, yep. Genevieve Linebarger is the co-author of the story, The Lady Who Sailed the Soul. Right, and apparently she also helped with the Casher O'Neill stories, of which On the Gem Planet is one. Ah, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So yeah, and the other thing to remember, um, okay, Scanners Live in Vain was his first published science fiction story, uh, written in the late 40s, published in 1950. If you look at the copyrights, um, he published that and then almost nothing else in the, well, let's see, the only other things, Game of Rat and Dragon in 56, so you know, the big gap six years later, Burning of the Brain in 58, and then... Um, Nancy in 59 so he starts to pick up again in 58 and 59 um, mm-hmm. and then the early 60s he just cranks out a whole ton of these far future instrumentality stories and then he drops dead oh, and Cold Reader <laughs> Smith died in, um, in 1965 I believe oh sorry 66 mm-hmm. um and we can only imagine, I mean, what he would have, what he would have done 
if he'd been able yeah. to keep writing. He was only 53 when he died. I mean, that's that's a, a, it was a career just really cruelly cut short, I think. Yeah, there was there were definitely a lot of stories still left in this universe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my word. Um, and I think his emotional power was getting better um, mm-hmm. in, in the later stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It, and, and the, how to put it, you could tell that there was there is a there's a feeling of filling in gaps as more and more stories are written, mm-hmm. and it really the, the the scope of the history. I mean, I I don't think I've seen anything similar. Technically, maybe the Foundation series. Um, Foundation. Technically, there is a chunk of Heinlein's fiction that can be read as a future history. Okay, but. Um, and in fact, I love a particular Heinlein short story collection called Pass Through Tomorrow, mm-hmm. which slots all these things into a, into a future history, but it's nowhere near as coherent as this one. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the very next story in, in this Nesfa collection. So this is uh, the collection that Karen and I are both working from. It's called The Rediscovery of Man. It's from the New England Science Fiction Association Press. Um, they're very good at putting out scholarly and comprehensive editions of things and, and bless them for it. And mm-hmm. what they did with this collection is they slotted every story, every short story, every science fiction short story that Cordwainer Smith wrote into uh, his future history and published them in that order. So not the order mm-hmm. he wrote them in, but the order that they flow through the future history. Yes, and Karen did in fact warn me to read the stories according to the table of contents because then that would be chronological order because she figured that would give me a better sense of, this, of the history of the universe. And I promptly forgot her instruction and read the last one first. Yeah, and I'm like, anyway, can't <laughs> I'm totally lost. But then I read Scanners, um, um, Scanners Live in Vain, which was the first one chronologically that we were looking at. And I was also lost and I realized, no, 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 hang on. This is just, this is just the way you write. Um, he drops you in at the deep end. And it's so hilarious because last podcast, I was talking about Yoon Ha Lee being very courageous as a contemporary writer for not feeling as if she has to explain every, every little detail to the reader. But, you know, I, I should have I realized that we haven't lacked for writers from, you know, from way back who have had that same level of, yeah, you, you just get in here and don't worry about the details. They'll come to you eventually. And, and mind you, again, Scanners, he didn't think of that as pulp. He thought of it as literary. Right. So it's very much a literary trick, even if it's being done for science fiction, that you're not necessarily explaining every detail. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... So in the Nesva collection, um, Scanners Live in Vain is immediately followed by The Lady Who Sailed the Soul. Um, but they were written about at least nine years apart. Uh, certainly they were published 11 years apart. And in this story, you get two introductions, which I'm not sure how well that works. <laughs> uh-huh. First you get an introduction telling you that this is one of the great, great you know, epic romances of of their time and then you get um, a framing narrative of um, a, a mother or a child asking a mother about them and the two the two actors here are Helen America and Mr. Gray No More and the idea is 
that and it it specifically says uh, sometimes they're compared to um, Heloise and Abelard, mm-hmm. that great great romantic pair. So, so for, but right after you get the second the second introduction, next you get Helen America's backstory, and it's it's the most awful. <laughs> it's the most awful thing. Basically, um, her mother is this perfect caricature. Of, I got I got whiplash reading it. I really I did. <laughs> I know. I was reading this. And I was like, I, I was starting through it. And I'm like, I can't make Karen read this. This is awful. Um, <laughs> it's this awful caricature, a cartoony caricature of a of a, a '60s radical feminist. Everything yeah. that you would you would say, you know, to be mean about a feminist is is what this woman is present is how this woman is presented. Uh, Miss Muggeridge, a bony, pompous blonde. <laughs> yes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, had selected the perfect father and they would inevitably produce the, the perfect child and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this is what poor Helen um, grows up with, is is with a celebrity mother and... And, um, and, and exceedingly high expectations of the entire world. Right, right. And, and um, media attention. But then her and, it, mother, and it might be expectations to succeed or to fail. I should point that out. <laughs> right, right. So, um, but when she's a teenager, her mother finally comes to a bad end, um, <laughs> as as somebody that cartoony is wont to do. And Helen's left on her own. And it turns out Helen, as some you know celebrity offspring do, actually has developed quite a good head on her shoulders. Yeah. Um, she studies hard. She's very good at what she does. She applies for several different professions. And I like, I like the fact that it wasn't her first choice. Her last choice, um, was to be a pilot. And, and instead of being a pilot in the Scanners of Invain era, now she's a pilot in more of a solar sail Mm -hmm. era, but it still doesn't make a lick of sense. (laughs) From no, not really. Supposition <laughs> is like, why would you have solar sails when you're obviously traveling faster than light? Because let me tell you, it takes more than forty years to get anywhere if you're using solar sails. Anyway, just let a hand wave that and move on. <laughs> yeah, we'll just like yeah, wave our hands in the air and and call it good. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, so no woman, and because obviously in eleven thousand years, women aren't going to make any progress whatsoever. <laughs> um, no woman has ever been a solar sail pilot, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but men have, and one of the few men who went out and came back is Mr. Gray No More. Now, what happens to these sailors is that they have to be awake for the full 40 years of a transit, but they're modified, and again, through kind of horrific physical sur- surgery and neurological meddling, uh, they're modified so that... that passes that time passes subjectively in about a month so their bodies have been alive for 40 years but they only age a month and they've kind of been awake for 40 years but they've kind of only been awake for a month yeah so the the thought processes and everything are way slowed down mm-hmm. yeah literally i mean it's um it's described as you know you'll you'll look out the window and decide that you need to make an adjustment. And that happens that just that process takes about three weeks. Yes. Of real time. 
there's a little bit where there, where she's trying to ponder a course of action and she watches her fingernails growing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was a nice touch. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, and, and Mr. Grey No More is Grey No More because essentially, of course, they give men um, depilatories. You know, they keep their beards from growing because that's just a, a complete waste. And, um, and as a side effect of that on this particular man, um, his hair come... They, I can't remember if his hair is actually artificial or if it just... Uh, is they gave him a scalp transplant. Scalp transplant, that was it. <laughs> and now his hair is just permanently black. Mm-hmm. So this guy, Mr. Gray No More, had, had um, attracted quite a bit of media attention, being one of the first men to, to go out and come back. And, and this was happening at the same time that Helen, Helen America, is, was outed, essentially, as wanting to be a sailor. And so the media is like, oh, my God, look, you know, this perfect child of this celebrity is, wants to be a sailor and the sailors just come back and oh, my God. And, and they both are like, Haha, no. You know, it's amazing how depictions of the media, it looks like the media just hasn't changed, whether it's the 50s, present time or the far future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm like, that, that actually, I do kind of appreciate that because so many science fiction stories ignore the media altogether. But yeah, they've even got headlines. Perfect girl wants to be sailor. Should sailor himself date perfect girl? <laughs> I can uh-huh. totally see that at a checkout stand any minute. So, um, so they both say no, and they totally ignore all the media attention. But um, through an extremely unlikely set of circumstances, um, the media gives them both a ticket, essentially tickets to. A, a sort of resort hotel where they can just hang out. And they actually say, look, we've got enough stories for this week. If you guys want to take, up, uh, take us up on a fully paid vacation, we promise we won't hound you. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. wait, you mean you promise you won't hound us? And they're like, yeah, no, seriously, we're good. And so like, uh, okay. <laughs> so they both go and they end up striking up a conversation without a whole ton of media attention and they fall in love. Yeah, they fall in love over um, mutual interest in their work. Right, right. They're you know she he's been through something that she is you know is is contemplating herself. She wants to know what his experiences are like, and and he tries to tell her, but of course it's a very hard experience to describe or conceptualize. Mm-hmm. Um, they do fall into bed together and, and have a great time. And, but then um, he breaks it off and he basically says, look, you know, I'm, I don't like it here on, on this earth. I'm going to go back and, you know, I don't want you to follow me. Um, you need to live your life. I'm too old for you. That's it. We're, you know, we're done. And it's interesting because mentally, of course, they're more or less the same age. Right. But, but physically, he's, he's aged that additional 40 years. And so um, there's an interesting little bit where she, um, she actually has an abortion. And this is fascinating because of the time it was written. Again, yeah. I'm like, uh, has anybody else noticed how really progressive he was on this issue? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was done very, very calmly. And, and, and it was one of, the, one of the few things that I've read in a, sort of a 1950s, 1960s, far future thing that really honestly felt as if the person had broken out of the expectations of their era a bit yeah i mean this is this is this is a man who had been well haha we say man but as i said his wife co-authored it 
but you know, he just given you this stereotype of the 1950s little woman. And then all of a sudden you just have this woman very quietly and calmly responding to the end of, of a love affair by making a decision that she's not going to bring a, a child into it as a single parent. A lot of which, mind you, was influenced, I think, by the way her mother raised her. Right, yeah, and that's uh -huh. the other thing. Even just within this story, you get this whiplash. Today, if you had somebody making all these comments about radical feminists, you would assume they were pro-life. That's was, a very good point, yeah. In, in American politics, the way the stereotypes are today, or, you, know, you would assume that they were very right-wing. Cordwainer Smith was operating in such a different political environment that I kept, <laughs> I kept tripping over these. Well, if he says this, then he must be X, Y, and Z. And it's like, oh, no, wait, those stereotypes didn't apply to him or to his era. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, and, and, you know, it's just a calm little thing that happens in a paragraph. She's in the, and she doesn't suffer because of it. You know, there's no sin or it's not a judgmental thing. It's just, oh, no, you know, that's what she does. Mm -hmm. And then she does go and, and become a sailor, and she um, uh, she gets the training, and she gets the physical modifications, and she, she goes out. Something goes wrong during the transit. One of her sails, her sails get jammed, and the robots can't, can't unjam it. And, you know, she's an incredibly bright person, so she hacks together, or she, she goes through kind of her mental inventory of what resources she has, she realizes that she has actually been given a weapon. And mm -hmm. she's, what she's hoping is that she can use this weapon, it's a handheld, like, ray gun of some kind. <laughs> More hand baby. <laughs> yeah, like you do. To, un, to un, basically undo whatever blockage is, is happening um, out, you know, that the robots can't, can't get around. Mm -hmm. So she starts to line up the shot, and then she's like, something stops her, and she's like, hey, wait, is it a bad idea to be shooting through the window? <laughs> <laughs> and then she has this very vivid hallucination of Mr. Gray No More walking in and saying, whoa, don't do that, do this other thing instead. And and she does the other thing, and and um, and he goes away, and the blockage is... is eradicated the robots are able to do their repair work and and they're right back on course and i want to point out that the kind of physical modifications and mental stress that she's under she has every right to hallucinate at this point oh yeah no i mean okay the the description of of being awake for that full month while and and what i think one of the people says you're not just awake for a month you're awake for a month while constantly undergoing surgery without anesthetic yeah, yeah, it was vivid. <laughs> Very vivid. Um, yeah. The, oh, here we go. Um, the technician went on. Now, we've already built in psych psychotic elements. You can't even expect to remain sane, so you better not worry about it. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, so it makes perfect sense that, that her brain kind of provided her this hallucination to give her the feedback that she needed to, to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And and I like the fact that even though it's presented as, um, you know, he he, she's imagining him coming to rescue her, it's still obviously her. Yeah. 
Yeah. And when they get to their destination, Mr. Gray No More, who is part of the shipment of people, um, he wakes up and, and now they've both been through the same experience, right? So now they're and both, they are both physically the same age. Right. They're physically the same age and mentally the same age and they've shared these experiences and they're like, That's it, we're never being parted again. You know, their <laughs> their love has, has conquered the stars. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, as she's dying, um she says, uh her, her loving, happy, weary, dying mind blurred over, and she picked up an argument they hadn't touched on for decades. You did so come to the soul, she said. You did so stand behind me when I was lost and didn't know how to handle the weapon. And then, um, and then he says, you know, I'll, I'll come again wherever you are. Um, you're my own. Yes. You sailed for me. And he gets very mushy, doesn't he? <laughs> it, I mean, it's very mushy, but it's also just a beautiful little ending. Yes, it is. And, and mind you, you didn't say, you said when she was dying, you almost made it sound as if she died soon after, but they had a, oh, no, a centering of, of wedded bliss. So, you know, one point out there. But what's interesting is that this very mushy ending actually comes, you know how you said there are two beginnings? Yeah. It's almost like there are two endings. There are and, two um, endings, yeah. And one of, one of the endings is the um, person who is hearing the tale, who in the, in the beginning entry is a child, by the ending is an adult and is is incredibly cynical <laughs> about the story. It's like you know, not com- complete, completely unromantic about it. So, so you first have this sort of very, very cynical, you know, brushing this off kind of um, response to the story, and then you have this this cutesy little ending to it, and it actually balances up quite well. <laughs> I know, I know, it does. And I was, I kept trying to figure out like why. You know, why is there this bit with the mother and the child and the and the little transforming doll? Mm-hmm. And and I think I need to think about it some more, but it's definitely got something to do with why we need old stories and why we keep them around. But, you know, I have a theory that has to do more with um, his arc for humanity throughout the universe. OK. And, and I want to say a little bit about that because... Um, one strong arc is um, the, the the evolution of spaceflight and what it requires and what the different types of pilots or people who facilitate pilots do. But another strong arc is that um, humanity gets to the point where basically the different Earths and so on, they're utopias. And then they come to a point, the chiefs of instrumentality come to a point where they're like, but wait a minute, have we actually lost something of our humanity by making everything perfect and removing all kind of risk and danger from the world? So they start to make things imperfect again. So the interesting thing that I found is that while they were still kind of more to the utopian state, you you had some reactions like this. The the child child, um, now growing up scoffing at, at the sentimental story. And also scoffing at this this broken toy. But by the time you get to on the gem planet, they've, they've sort of rediscovered sentimentality and they've sort of rediscovered an appreciation for love, even if it's love that can't go anywhere. Right, right. Although, my goodness, Karen, it's like you're giving us a natural segue to Alpha Alpha Boulevard or something. I don't understand. I just, it just <laughs> comes naturally. <laughs> And with that, dear listener, I believe we break our podcast here. We've decided to split our Cordwainer Smith podcast into two parts for reasons of length and mercy. But in two weeks, you'll be able to hear us dis- continue our conversation discussing Alpha Ruffle Boulevard and On the Gem Planet. Until then, thanks as always for listening. <laughs>